This morning's reading is in Mark's Gospel um, and can be found on page 1004 of the Bibles. Um, Mark chapter 2, beginning at verse 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, How is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, he pours new wine into new wineskins. One Sabbath... Jesus was going through the cornfields, and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some ears of corn. The Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? He answered, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Another time he went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, Stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, Which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? but they remained silent. He looked round at them in anger and, deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. We're looking at King Jesus. Mark writes this gospel to show us King Jesus. And so right at the beginning, we saw the intro to the king as Jesus appears on the scene and shows us he has a message of good news. We saw the authority of the king, that he has the authority to call his disciples. He has the authority over disease and demons, and he has authority to preach. And then two weeks ago, we saw the purpose of the king. The, per- the heart that Jesus shows, the priority that Jesus has, and the people that Jesus came for. And this week, we see 
conflict that Jesus has with Israel's leaders. He comes to confront the establishment. He comes to confront the norms. He comes to confront religion. Now, you'll know as well as I do, many in society today have no time for religion. They're not interested in religion. So many people will see it as just rules that spoil our fun. And so they often put Jesus in the same bracket. They put the two together and say, Jesus, he's just there to spoil our fun. And maybe that's you here today. You're here, but you think, this Jesus guy I'm just not sure about. But in these passages we've just had read out, we see a different Jesus. We see a Jesus who's prepared to confront religion. We see a Jesus who says, that is not what I'm about. And so after seeing the mercy that Jesus shows to the paralyzed man, to the man with leprosy, to the tax collectors and sinners, we see a different side to Jesus this week. It's a Jesus who goes on the offensive. He goes against the religious leaders, the Pharisees. We see a series of conflicts in these passages. And I wonder if you've noticed the sequence in them. We see the same sequence throughout. We saw it in the last two with the paralyzed man and the tax collectors and sinners, and we see it again. Something happens. The questions and accusations come from the religious leaders, and Jesus responds directly to them. We saw it with the paralyzed man. We saw it with the tax collectors and sinners, and now we have three more. Jesus comes to challenge the norms of religious life. Jesus offers us something different, something new, something attractive, something that's worth having, something that's worth sharing with others. So let's have a look at these three encounters and see what Jesus offers. Here's the first thing. Jesus says it's about him, not religion. It's Jesus, not religion. Jesus and his disciples are challenged about their attitude to fasting. Fasting is seen as an expression for the longing of God. And so in the Old Testament, the people of God were called to fast just one day a year on the Day of Atonement. But as the Old Testament travels on, there are more days that are given over to fasting. It becomes more frequent because the longing of the coming of God in the Messiah is, is more felt, and so they felt the longing to fast. The Pharisees decided to increase this, and they called people to fast two days a week. And so when confronted about fasting, or the lack of fasting, Jesus gives three responses in three pictures, and all three of them point to him. First, he gives us the bridegroom, verse 19. Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so as long as they have him with them. Jesus gives us a picture of a wedding, a a day of celebration, a a day if you've been to a wedding or if you've got married, where you know that the focus is on the couple. Everyone wants to chat to them. Everyone wants to take a photo of them. The couple have this permanent smile on their face that they cannot get rid of. That means they've got sore cheeks by the end of the evening. Could you imagine fasting at a wedding? No wedding breakfast? 
No wedding cake, no champagne or Prosecco. Jesus says, I am the bridegroom. The focus is to be on me. And so because the bridegroom is here, well, now is a time of celebration, not mourning. It's a time of feasting, not fasting. Fasting has a right place, but Jesus says it's not now. And by using this language, this picture of the bridegroom, Jesus isn't just coming up with a nice picture, but he's actually making a big claim. This picture of the bridegroom was used in the Old Testament to talk about the relationship between God and the people of Israel. And the Old Testament talks about how that relationship was broken. The people of Israel were unfaithful to God. They cheated on him. And yet Isaiah says, God will come, and he will come as a husband for his bride, for his people. You see what Jesus is saying? The bridegroom you are waiting for is here. So celebrate. Jesus is the bridegroom. It's all about him. And then he gives two more pictures, two more analogies for what he is doing as he comes in verses 21 and 22. And I realize reading this, this is totally uncharted territory for me. I know nothing about sowing. I know nothing about home brewing. But here's what I think Jesus is getting at as he uses these pictures. He's giving a contrast between the old and the new and the dangers of mixing them together. So he's saying a new patch of cloth that's sewn onto an old, already shrunk garment, well, when you wash it, the new patch will shrink, and it will make the tear worse. Or new wine would ferment, and it therefore would stretch the wineskins. And so if new wine is poured into old wineskins that are already stretched, the skins would, be, would burst, the wine would be lost. What Jesus is wanting to say is the old is incompatible with the new. The new wine of what Jesus is bringing, the kingdom of God we saw in chapter 1, the gospel of good news, it cannot be just poured into the old wineskins of Judaism. Jesus is saying, if, if, if you try and treat me, if you try and relate to me, based on the, the old way of doing things, it just will not work. Jesus hasn't come to, to reform or, or just simply patch up Israel's religion. He's come to fulfill it. He's come to transform it. He's come to bring in something new. It, it still has a relation with the old, but it's been fulfilled. It's new in that Jesus takes it to its climax, takes it to its fulfillment, its transformation. Right now, around 10,000 miles from here in Melbourne, England are playing Pakistan, I think, depending on the weather. I have no idea what the score is. I don't even know who won the toss. I don't even know if the weather's coming, so don't spoil it for me, and I won't be able to spoil it for you. But England, if you have no idea what I'm talking about, England are in the final of the T20 Cricket World Cup. And it's been quite a transformation for them. In 2015, they were knocked out of the World Cup in Australia in embarrassing fashion, losing easily. And so it was decided total change was needed. Transformation was needed. 
And it wasn't a, a, a sense of completely out with the old and in with the new. No five players who played in 2015 are playing today. But there was transformation. The, the way they approached their games, the mentality they had, the type of player they chose to pick, there was total change. And as a result since, they've won the 50-over 50 world, 50 world Cup. They're now in the final of the 20 world, T20 World Cup. They've always got to either the semi-final or the final of every competition they've entered. Total transformation. It's not a new thing that adds to the old thing. It's a new thing that transforms, fulfills the old thing. Jesus brings a new age that is all about him. And it's all about joy and celebration. And so as we come into the New Testament and today, this picture of the bridegroom continues. The New Testament speaks of this picture of the church as the bride of Christ. It's the marriage that every marriage is to point forward to. Here is the one to love above all else. And so can I ask, what does that look like for you? If you're here and you're not a Christian, do you see that Jesus says it's all about him? It's not religion. It's about a person. If you know Jesus, is everything you do centered around him? It's about Jesus, not religion. And then in these next two encounters, we see Jesus challenged about the Sabbath in both occasions. And we see again something happens. The question or the challenge comes, and then Jesus responds. And in the first encounter, we see that Jesus brings rest, not rules. Jesus brings rest, not rules. Jesus and his disciples are challenged again about picking the ears of corn on the Sabbath. The Sabbath is the last day of the Jewish week, Saturday, and it's set aside for rest, so no work is allowed. And in this particular instance, there are rules that say you're not allowed to work for food. You're not allowed to plant it. You're not allowed to harvest the crops on the Sabbath. But there were Old Testament rules that allowed for the picking of grain or corn on the Sabbath to allow for the, as means for provision of hunger. And, and this is what it seems that the disciples and Jesus are doing. And yet it seems as if the Pharisees are out watching the kind of Sabbath moral police, looking out for a chance to catch Jesus out. And, and so to accuse him and his disciples of what they're doing, it's, it's unlawful. And Jesus responds in verses 25 to 28. He responds in three things, in three ways. And he could respond by just kind of quoting what we've just looked at. But look how he responds. He says, look at three things. First, in verses 25 to 26, he says, look at the Old Testament. Jesus speaks of an incident involving David and his companions in 1 Samuel 21. They're hungry, they're in need. And, and the high priest, who, who knows the law, allows David to come in and eat the bread that would have been consecrated on the Sabbath. David needed food. His companions needed food. And so the priest sees the spirit of the law rather than just holding to the letter of the law. But it's more than just an example to try and push back at the Pharisees. Once again, Jesus is pointing to who he is. He uses David almost as saying, do you remember David? 
your greatest king ever, do you remember what he did? You wouldn't dispute him, right? As he and his companions come in need. Here I am, the greater David, the one that David is pointing to, the Messiah king you are waiting for. Here I am with my companions, my followers. Are you going to dispute what I have to say? He says, look back at the Old Testament. And then second look, he says in verse 27, he says, look at the Sabbath, verse 27. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. This is one of these word plays that kind of hurts my head trying to work out what is going on here. But here Jesus is saying the Sabbath is made for man. It's for our good. It's for our benefit. It's for our renewal. It's not the other way round. But the Pharisees have flipped it on its head and have turned it the other way round. The way they act, it's almost as if it's the Sabbath that should be served. But actually, the Sabbath is there to serve humanity. God created Sabbath for the well-being of humans. The Pharisees have turned the goodness of Sabbath upside down. Sabbath was made for renewal, for rest, for worship, for our benefits. But the, the Pharisees have made the Sabbath a burden. They let the tail wag the dock, as the saying goes. The Sabbath has become a burden for people to follow, and it was never meant to be that way. It was meant to be for the benefit of people to enjoy. So Jesus says, look at the Sabbath. And then final look, Jesus says in verse 28, he says, look at me. What a statement Jesus makes. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Jesus uses that title we saw two weeks ago, the Son of Man, a title used in the Old Testament to talk about God's coming King, and says, the Son of Man, me, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. I'm in charge of the Sabbath. I fulfill the Sabbath. And we see that in two ways. First, Jesus changed the Sabbath. Following his resurrection on the first day of the week, we see later on in Mark, so the Sabbath, the Christian Sabbath rest becomes Sunday, our first day of the week. And so we see through Acts, we're told the church met on the first day of the week. And so the church has continued to meet throughout the ages on their Sunday Sabbath rest. And so we are called to keep Sunday special, to protect it. But let's not make our Sunday Sabbath some kind of legalistic ritual. It is meant to be a day of renewal, of refreshing. Don't make it a burden. Enjoy it as a blessing. As we come together, we meet with one another, we listen to God's word, we encourage one another, we praise him. But let's not make Sunday so special that it becomes all about Sunday. Because Jesus says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. Sabbath is ultimately fulfilled in Christ. Sabbath is designed for restoration, for, for rest for the soul. And Jesus says, find your rest in me. Here's what he says in Matthew 11. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. It's not about Sunday, 
No, Sunday helps us be pointed to Christ. Sunday rest points us to Christ, helps point us to the rest that's found in him. Everything revolves around Jesus, not the other way around. And yet in the passage, the irony is that the Pharisees are the ones who end up working on the Sabbath by making Sabbath a work. They keep the Sabbath as a way of earning God's blessing and acceptance. Jesus says, come to me, rest in me, and that is how you enjoy God's blessing and acceptance. What will that look like for our relationships with Jesus to to keep him special every day, not just on a Sunday? Jesus says it's about rest, not rules. And then in our final encounter, the final conflict we see with the religious leaders, we see it's about grace, not law. It's about grace, not law. This is an incredible encounter. Do you see in verse 2, we're told explicitly that the Pharisees are looking out for a way to catch Jesus out. It's interesting as we read this, it's not that they doubt whether Jesus can heal at all. No, they want to see whether he will do it on the Sabbath. Do you see that? It's not if he could heal him, it's if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Do you see how distorted this is of the Pharisees? Using this man as an opportunity for healing, to use it to condemn and bring death to Jesus. And so Jesus knows it, and he wants everyone to see it for what it is. He brings the man in front of the crowd, verse 3. He knows it, and so he uses the situation to make a point. And I wonder, did you, do you notice how this confrontation is slightly different to the other confrontations? In the others, it's always been the religious leaders, the Pharisees, who ask the question of Jesus. In chapter 2, verse 7, with the paralyzed man. In verse 16, with the tax collectors and sinners. In verse 18, with the issue of fasting. In verse 24, with the issue of Sabbath. Here, Jesus turns it on his head. He's the one asking the question. Verse 4. And do you see how the tables turn just in this passage alone? In verse 2, we're told it's the Pharisees who are looking. They want to accuse But then in verse 5, it's Jesus who's doing the looking. In verse 4, it's Jesus who's the one asking the questions. You see, the Pharisees want Jesus in the dock. And yet, they end up in the dock themselves. Jesus here gets right onto the front foot. And so here is the challenge to the Pharisees, verse 4. Which is lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil, to save life, or to kill. Do good or evil, to save life or kill. Surely it's an obvious answer, right? Surely it's to do good. Surely it's to save life. Because to Jesus, people are more important than rules. And yet the Pharisees answer, well, it says everything, right? Silence. You see, here is the heart of the issue for the Pharisees. They miss the point of the law. The law is there for the good 
of people. Yet the Pharisees don't care about the good of people. They care about the letter of the law. And so if the letter of the law stops you from doing good to people, well, so be it, they say. And so as someone said, the Sabbath is turned into a competition to see who can do nothing best. The Sabbath loses all its meaning when it's disconnected from God's heart to bless his people. And this angers Jesus. A a righteous anger, an anger that says, if you're not interested in me, you're stubborn, hard hearts. If you're not interested in people, you're just interested in rules. And that is not the gospel that I am bringing in. This is the gospel I am bringing in. It's a gospel of grace. So then, verse 5, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. It's grace, not law. Do you see the difference it makes? Jesus is about people, about goodness, about life. The Pharisees are about law. Jesus came to show grace. The Pharisees say, you have got to prove yourself good enough for God. What does that look like in practice? Well, here's how one Christian writer describes it. He says, imagine two people looking to obey God and yet operating from two completely opposing paradigms. They're both wanting to keep the Sabbath. But for one, obedience is a burden. It's an enslavement. For the other, obedience is a delight. It's a gift. How can this be? Well, for the one over here, it's based on religion. It's based on rules. It's based on do. But for the one over here, it's based on the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's based on grace. It's based on done. And so... Obedience is still involved, but for the person over here, they're thinking, if I perform, if I obey, then I'm accepted. But for the one over here, he says, I am completely accepted, and so I want to obey. And this was the intention through the Old Testament. Think back to the Ten Commandments. How do they start in Exodus chapter 20? God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. God says, I've done it for you. I've saved you. You are mine. So listen to me and obey because it is the best thing for you. I mean, in one sense, if I can say this, it's ridiculous. No other system in the world works like that. No other religion, nothing in the world. Think about it. The world says, I need to deserve it. I need to work hard in order to deserve it. That job, that promotion, the pay rise, the bonus. Think about sport this week. The England football squad was announced for the World Cup. How do you make the grade? You've got to deserve it. You've got to perform. You've got to earn it. Jesus decides to do it totally differently. He he totally turns it on his head. He says, I've done it for you. It's a gift. 
Just trust me and follow me. That's how you are accepted and loved and blessed and saved by God. Oh, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saves a wretch like me. I once was lost and now I'm found. He found me. I didn't earn it. Was blind, but now I see. I wonder if you've seen the film Chariots of Fire. It tells the story of two Olympians at the Paris 1924 Games. It speaks of Eric Liddell, who's a Christian. And because of his Christian convictions, he decides he cannot run on a Sunday. And so he loses his chance for the gold medal in a race that he's expected to win. And so the movie tells his story. But throughout the movie, it contrasts him with another athlete, Harold Abrahams. Both of them are competing against each other to win the gold medal. Yet their motivations are so, so different. Harold Abrahams has to prove himself. And so in the build-up to the 100 meters, here's what he says to a friend. He says, I've got 10 seconds to justify my existence. Can you believe that? The enslavement? I've got 10 seconds to prove that I'm worth it. He's this person over here. Yet little just wants to please the God who he knows has already accepted him. And so what's his attitude to running? He said, God made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. It's grace versus law. Do you know this grace? If you do, don't move on from this grace. Because I think the danger can be that that we know we're saved by grace, and yet we carry on in our Christian lives acting as if it's by law. What do I need to do? What must I not do? But to carry on with the song Amazing Grace, tis grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. As we finish, do you see the final verse? It's an astonishing finish. As a result of the conflict we've seen, what does it drive the Pharisees to do? Verse 6, then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. The Herodians are our supporters of King Herod, the ones who are in charge of Israel at the time. They want to keep the peace. They want to maintain the status quo. They want to keep things the way they are because they're in charge. And any unrest, and the Romans will just come and get rid of them. The Pharisees didn't agree with the Herodian rule. They want their Messiah to come and rule and get rid of the Herodians. The Herodians definitely didn't want a Messiah. And yet, what do they both manage to agree on? Neither of them want Jesus. It's an incredible alliance. Two complete opposites coming together because they both want to get rid of Jesus. Do you see how Jesus' question in verse 4 cuts right to the heart of the Pharisees? Which is lawful, to do good or to do evil? That more speaks to the man. Is it right to do good for this man or to do evil? To save life or to kill? Now he's speaking to the heart of the Pharisees. And the Pharisees, in the end, do end up answering the question. 
They go off on the Sabbath and plot to kill. And Jesus hinted at this in verse 20. Did you see it? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. Jesus hints at his departure. You see, Sabbath rest was started by God right at the start of the Bible. When he finished his creating work, we're told he rested on the seventh day. When Jesus died on the cross, he said, it is finished. Because of Jesus' death on the cross, it is finished. It has been done for you. So you can rest in the finished work of Christ. Because of the finished work of Christ, you do not need to make yourself good enough for God. Because of the finished work of Christ, you do not need to prove your existence. You do not need to make yourself worthy for life like Harold Abrahams felt so burdened in order to do. As Jesus died on the cross, he said it was finished. He has done it for you. So rest in the finished work of Christ. Let me pray for us. Father God, thank you so much for Jesus. Thank you for how he comes and challenges the established norms. It challenges the traditions of the Pharisees. Thank you for how he brings in something new and wonderful. Thank you for how he brings amazing grace. That it has been done for us. And so we can now rest in the arms of Christ, knowing that you accept us because of what Christ has done for us. Help us to remember that. And may that be the motivation we have in everything we do as we look to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen.